Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his essay, How to Seem Virtuous Without Actually Being So, Alistair McIntyre, in a section called Moral Immaturity and Counterfeit Virtue, is going to talk about one common prevalent approach to the virtues and all sorts of other moral matters that actually does address the sorts of questions that he's raised a little bit earlier in the essay. But one, he says, that does not fail by reason of indeterminacy in its answers to these, but rather by reason of giving false or defective answers to these questions, with the result being that it contrives an appearance of virtues that, as he says, are discrepant with the reality of the virtues. And he specifies that here he doesn't just mean a moral theory, he means a set of practices. And he takes this as being quite common in our society and especially among the people who would put themselves forward as moral educators. Now, in the next section, he will say, by the way, if you have already figured out what sort of moniker or title we can give to this, it is human. It is essentially a perspective informed by the work of David Hume, who actually did have a lot to say about virtues, about rules, about goods, about moral theory. If you read the treatise of human nature, book two is about the passions and book three is about out living together in society. So matters of justice, matters of morality. And then Hume will actually also, in addition to producing the inquiry concerning the human understanding, he has the inquiry regarding the principles of morals. So Hume is very devoted to this. And there's a lot of people who, whether they realize it or not, according to McIntyre, in our contemporary culture are effectively Humeans. So how does this end up developing. We begin with a general problem, as he says, all education into the virtues, especially the education of the young, has to begin by discovering some way of doing what? Of transforming motivations of those who are to be educated. Now, this is an important point that we should linger on for a bit. Moral education is not just learning principles. It's not just having emotional reactions. It's not just looking at case studies or learning how to identify certain actions as good and certain actions as bad. It includes a transformation of the person who is being educated. McIntyre says, if you don't have this, it's not really moral education. It's not really formation of the person. It is just giving them information instead. So education in the virtues has to transform motivation 
motivations. What does this mean? Well, what are the motivations that children and people who are immature start with? So there's an initial situation and we can say within that our appetites, so what are our desires, that's an old-fashioned word for desires, and our passions or our emotions are directed to satisfaction. And this can be understood largely in terms of pleasure. You know, we find certain things are pleasant and we're like, oh, I want more of that. Or, you know, I see a, another instance of that. I'm going to go over there and get that pleasure that I know I actually enjoy. Or pain. We try to avoid things that are painful. And so, you know, as animals, you could say, we emerge into the world and we start feeling good, feeling bad and saying, how can I have more of that good stuff? How can I have less of that bad stuff? But we don't exist entirely on our own like some sort of infant Robinson Crusoe, who, by the way, has, you know, all the panoply of society that he recovers from the ship and he has Friday and other people as well. So he's not totally alone as we sometimes imagine him to be. We exist in a world of others. And those others, like it or not, help us to change, help us to transform, often before we even realize or think about this. And some of them are not particularly, you know, conscious of this. And so he's says that the initial appetites and passions will inevitably be directed towards their own satisfactions and towards pleasing those upon whom they depend to procure those satisfactions for them, who are these people, parents, surrogate parents, aunts, first teachers. And he says that normally pleasing such persons very early becomes one of the chief, if not the chief of such satisfaction. So we want the nice things. We want to avoid the things we don't like. And we know that we're dependent upon other people for those. And so we please them. We try to avoid painting them so we can get the sort of stuff that we want from them. And then over time, we begin to associate these together. And so we become pleased in pleasing those people, or we become pained in painting those people. And we have additional pleasures and pains that are arising. And he says that these sorts of people, parents, surrogate parents, first teachers, it's among such persons, moral educators are generally to be found. Now, what is the actual goal for this? If these people are actually morally mature and developed, then they want their pupils to make it past this initial situation. They don't want them to be thinking in terms of people pleasing the entire time or social conformity or however you want to frame it. He says this, the central problem with their pupils is how to enable those pupils to pass from pursuing certain particular goals internal to certain types of activity in highly specific ways. Now notice this important linkage here, only or largely because those pupils have recognized that their pursuit of those goals in those ways pleases their teachers so that they themselves are pleased by this kind of pleasure. So we want to move away from that to pursuing those same goals in the same way because they've come to appreciate those goals and their those particular ways of pursuing them as worthwhile in themselves. That is, their problem is how to enable their pupils to come to value goods, not just because they bring pleasure or make other people pleased, goods just as and insofar as they are goods and 
virtues just as and insofar as they are virtues. And let's take an example here. McIntyre doesn't really provide one, but I can think of one from my own life, something I myself went through and something that I've seen my own children going through, at least to a certain extent. So let's think about the virtue of generosity, right? Giving to others without, you know, expecting something necessarily in return. Now, you know, there could be some reciprocal giving and things like that. But if you're generous, if we think about it in an Aristotelian way, you are giving of your resources, could be money, could be time, could it be attention, could be other things, to the right people at the right time for the right reason. And it's not just to like be a big shot or to keep them from disliking you or to make them like you. It's because you recognize, well, this would be good for me to give to this person. This is a thing that I can afford to give to them. This will be helpful. And even if I don't get a return on it, I've done a good thing. It's good in itself. The virtue of generosity is good to have. I haven't always been generous like that in my lifetime. And I can think of many instances when I was young and immature where I gave in order to get, or I gave in order to be liked or not to be disliked, right? And I can look at my own kids. I mean, all kids are, are like this. They, they'll have moments of showing something that looks like a virtue, but they're not necessarily virtuous yet. And it could be manipulative. It could be people-pleasing. It could be all sorts of stuff. When you actually see your child, sometimes this doesn't happen in their childhood years. It may happen later on down the line because it takes a while to learn these things. When you see your child being genuinely generous and you can, you can recognize that it's so, that it's not just being done to fit in, to please other people, but because there's a recognition that this is the right thing to do. This is a good way to be. Well, then you can tell that that transformation has indeed happened. Or let's take courage. You could be courageous, but only so it pleases the people around you. That's not actually valuing courage for its own sake. And so McIntyre goes on and he points out something really interesting. This is not an either or, right? You can do things that are good, that are virtuous, and they can also still have the effect of pleasing other people, but you're not doing it just for that reason. That's not the primary motivation. And if it doesn't happen to please people, what you're doing, you can still actually do it because it's virtuous and you recognize it. So how do we enable people to recognize these sorts of things? That's what McIntyre is saying genuine moral education would consist in. What if you get this wrong. So he says that, what if those pupils fail to make that transition from thinking about things in terms of pleasure and pain and other factors that we're gonna look at? He says, then they will continue on some occasions to do what a genuinely virtuous person would do, but because they've misidentified what it is about those actions that would make them genuine examples of a particular virtue, they will extrapolate wrongly, falsely, mistakenly, 
right, to the inferences about what the virtues require in situations other than those which, with which they were at first familiarized. And he says these false extrapolations can be of two different kinds. One could be about the propensity of these actions to give pleasures. So, you know, these people remain permanently immature, their adult judgments being the unacknowledged outcome of the continuing less than adult interactions between id and superego. And here McIntyre is using sort of old-fashioned Freudian terminology. You don't necessarily have to buy into Freud. McIntyre is actually a critic of Freud if you've ever read his book, The Unconscious. What is he talking about there? So the id is all these appetites and desires that don't really have a lot of structure, but they get structure imposed on them. The superego is that voice from above or within that sometimes we call conscience or, you know, the internalized parent or teacher or something like that saying, you should behave like a good boy or girl, right? And the id says, oh, well, I, I want what I want. So there's always this, this struggle going on. Right? And that's a sign of an immature person, according to McIntyre. They're not integrated. The other possibility is to classify and characterize actions in terms of the propensity, the likelihood of those actions to please others who provide the social environment to their daily lives. So virtues then come to be understood, or he says rather misunderstood, as qualities that will cause others to be pleased and oneself to be pleased that these others are pleased and those others to be pleased, that one is pleased, that they are pleased. There's like a whole feedback loop going on there, right? And the vices will be understood in terms of pain, paining other people, that pain redounding to you because you didn't want to upset them or get on their bad side or get them on your bad side, right? And so this is a misunderstanding of the virtues, but it's natural that it comes about when you're taking the wrong things for guidance and you haven't made this transition. So McIntyre says the sources of such reciprocal pleasures and pains are going to be twofold. What are they? Mutual sympathy and shared conceptions of utility. Now, he doesn't provide a lot of explanation here, but we should think about what does this mean? So mutual sympathy is when you feel bad for making somebody else feel bad, or you feel bad when somebody else feels bad, and you feel good when they feel good, regardless of whether what they're feeling good about is good for them or what they're feeling bad about is bad for them, right? So you have to give bad news to somebody. You have to fire somebody. And you feel bad in saying, listen, uh, your services are no longer required. You're going to have a financial setback because of this. And, you know, it, it pains you as well, right? But maybe they deserve to be fired. Maybe they're actually a screw up who's creating all sorts of problems. You notice that there's an easy conflation of good or bad with what makes us feel good or bad. And then shared conceptions of utility. So utility, what he's invoking here is a kind of broadly utilitarian perspective where we take outcomes into consideration as the main moral factors that go into our decision making. And we're like, well, how does it work out best overall for people involved in this situation? How can we maximize positive outcomes, minimize negative outcomes, and take everybody into account. Those are not bad things, by the way. McIntyre is not saying, get rid of sympathy, get rid of utility. He's just saying, that's not enough to actually give you a, a right conception of the virtues. He says, reflection on these sources will provide the basis for articulation of a theory of the virtues in terms of pleasure and pain, sympathy and utility, 
which will both give expression to and articulate a rationale for the moral experience of this kind of person. You know, you, you can actually live your life like this. Many people do. It is a coherent, though wrong, ultimately, false way of understanding human development, moral education, and the virtues. How do you know that it's actually wrong? Well, McIntyre talks about the relationship of virtues to pleasure winding up being inverted, right? So how does that, that end up working? Where the teachers of the virtues took pleasure in certain kinds of action because they were virtuous, the pupils of those teachers, and doubtless the pupils of those pupils when they become teachers, will have come to treat certain kinds of action as virtuous because of their propensity to cause pleasure. So there is a connection between virtue and pleasure, right? But instead of, well, you do the virtue and it creates pleasure because the virtue is actually good, but it's not good because it creates pleasure. The pleasure is a nice byproduct of it. You switch them around. That's what inversion means. And now the virtues are good because they lead to pleasure. Your own pleasure or the pleasure of other people that then you take pleasure in. Or the vices are bad because they create pain. Your own pain or the pain of others. And then thereby your pain in their pain, right? This is a wrong conception a mistaken conception. And he says that it provides mistaken answers to the three key questions that he outlined earlier in the essay. And what are these three key questions? One has to do with counterfactuals. Given what you did, what would you have done if the situation had been different? What if we change the parameters, the variables of the situation? How do you behave then? Yeah, prime example of this. Okay, so you were generous because you saw other people watching you and they took delight in the generous action that you did. What would you have done if nobody was watching? Would you have behaved the same way or not? And somebody who's motivated by a genuine virtue is going to answer this differently than somebody who's motivated just by pleasure, pain, mutual sympathy, and conceptions of utility. Another question that's being raised is about the reasons that we give to support judgments about the virtues, reasons for acting in certain ways. And, you know, McIntyre here says, listen, the main reason that we would actually have if we are doing genuine virtue ethics is that there's some sort of telos, a goal, an end that we are trying to achieve. And not just a, an immediate one, like pleasing my parents, but a much broader one. Like I want to live a fulfilled, flourishing human life with other people. I want to develop myself into a good person. So different reasons for acting in different ways. And then the third one, he says, the third question concerned what it is in which pleasure and pain are taken. And he says the difference between the two positions here is perhaps most radical. Not a surprise, right? Because this defective position that he is diagnosing here is really about pleasure and pain and about the appetites, the desires, and about the passions or emotions. And he says that, you know, there's certain types of disposition which the genuinely virtuous will value as virtues, but those who give their allegiance to this kind of counterfeit will not perceive as virtues at all. But now notice he's not just saying they're not going to perceive them as virtues. They will change them into their opposite and make them into vices. 
And he says, I refer to those dispositions, the exercise of which has the specific purpose of transforming one's appetites and passions so that what before or at the outset of one's moral education gave one pleasure or pain will no longer do so. And one will instead come to take pleasure in or be pained by other states and qualities in order to carry out this transformation, which is, you know, the transformation we were talking about earlier, you actually have to be committed to a robust conception of the virtues that doesn't just reduce to people pleasing or avoiding punishment or mutual sympathy or shared conceptions of utility. It has to transcend that. It has to go beyond that. And then it's possible to actually have correct rather than mistaken conceptions of virtues and vices. So without this, we're actually going to get ourselves into a kind of impasse a situation which has allowed a certain amount of development, right? It's better to be a kind of person who can think in terms of other people and how they're being affected than just being totally selfish, right? But it doesn't yet get you to a genuine conception of the virtues and how and why we need them and what we have to do in order to progress towards them and how we have to maintain them once we've actually developed them in our characters. So this is a diagnosis of a form of understanding, you know, pleasure, pain, the virtues that gives us a false or defective set of understandings of the virtues, false answers to the questions that we're looking at and gives you an appearance rather than the reality of the virtues, which is exactly what this essay, How to Seem Virtuous Without Actually Being So, is about. McIntyre, talking about Hume, has just revealed to us one main way that people find themselves appearing virtuous, even to themselves, without actually being so. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.